when my wife and I first got married, we really got into playing cards and we would meet with friends every week and we would play different card games. And one of our favorite card games to play was poker. Poker just was such a cool game that allowed you to learn about people. You could talk while you were playing. It was a great way to, you know, learn about strategy and odds and, you know, different ways to calculate. And one of the things that you can do in poker that's a neat strategy is called bluffing. When you bluff, you pretend that you have a really good hand and because people can't see what cards you're holding, they have to figure out whether you're telling the truth or if you're not. And if you're really good at bluffing, you can convince the other players that you have a really good hand when you don't. And you can win a lot of chips that way. The same thing is possible spiritually. We can act like we've got it all together. We can put on a good face. We can show up to church on a regular basis. We can raise our hands. We can, um, you know, do all of the celebrations. We can be even leaders in our church communities and make everybody on the outside think that we've got all of our things with God put together, that we have a great relationship with God and that we're doing our best to follow him. But the problem is if we're bluffing on the inside, even though our outside looks really good, on the inside in our hearts, we're faking it. We're making it up as we go along. We're pretending and convincing other people that we're something that we're not. So today we're going to talk about this issue because if we're not careful, we can all, as followers of Jesus, fall into this trap of putting on a false front, of faking it and think, making people think that we've got it all together, that we are a strong leader, that we are a dynamic man or woman or God when in reality, we're falling apart on the inside. Now, there are different reasons for this. Sometimes people go through seasons of bluffing when they're really struggling and they don't want other people to know about it. Sometimes people bluff uh, spiritually because they're afraid if they tell people about their struggles, they'll be disqualified from their leadership positions or that their reputations will get damaged or destroyed. But there's also a group of people that bluff because they want other people to think that they are religious and that they are super holy and they are super spiritual, but they aren't really interested in doing the things it takes to have a serious relationship with God. One of those guys that we're going to learn about today is found in the book of 1 Samuel, and he's a guy named Saul. And if you've got your Bibles, please turn to 1 Samuel 13 with me, 1 Samuel chapter 13, and we're going to learn about this guy named Saul. Saul was the first king of the people of Israel. Up until this point in Israel's history, Israel had come out of Egypt through the Exodus, and for a period of time they had had governors. They had all of the people like Moses and Joshua, right? People that led them through. And then they had the period of judges, where these were people that were not kings or rulers or monarchs, but they were people that rose up to positions of leadership and authority in the people of Israel to save them from the enemies and the outsiders who tried to attack them. Because Israel was originally meant to be a theocracy. 
they were meant to be a people that were governed by God, that there may be representatives, and Moses and Joshua were people like this, where they represented God to the people, but God was the one making the decisions. God was the one who was their true king. But under the, the time of, of Samuel being their, the judge of Israel, the people of Israel come to Samuel and say that they want a king because they want to be like every other nation that they know of. Every other nation they saw surrounding them had a king, and so they wanted to be like the other people, even though God wanted them to be holy. God wanted them to be set apart and different. And so as King Saul gets put in position, he starts off really well. He's taller than everybody else. He's you know, a, a good leader. He's charismatic. He ends up actually becoming a very good general and fighting in battle and leading the people of Israel to many victories. And he reigns in Israel as their first king for 42 years. He does really great things. He unifies the 12 tribes and makes them one people. However, Saul had a lot of mental issues. Some people and historians even believe that he had some mental disabilities, that he had gone some as well as spiritual struggles that led him to have really, really high spiritual highs. I mean, Saul at different points worshiped God and prophesied. There was a phrase in Israel at the time of saying, is even Saul a prophet? And that meant that it are, it are regular everyday people even being used by God in amazing and mighty ways. But the big problem that Saul had, Saul had an issue with control. He had a difficult time it was almost impossible for him to let go of being in charge and let God have his way. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul and the armies are about to face a mighty battle. They are about to go into war. And right now they're in an area called Gilgal. And while this is going on, before they're about to go to war, the men of the military were trembling with fear. And starting in verse 8, it says this, Saul waited there, waited in Gilgal, seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier. But Samuel still didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away. Now, I can tell you, even though I've never been in direct combat, you know, I've never been in outright warfare, I do know what it's like to serve in the military, and I do know that morale is a huge, huge thing. The morale of your troops can make or break it. When I've been in some of the, the most far out and desolate, austere environments, I've seen troops have amazing morale and even report that they were having a great time being out there with nothing, you know, because their leaders boosted their morale and made them feel valued, made them feel like the mission they were setting out to accomplish was worthwhile. But I've also been in places that were amazingly comfortable with great places to sleep and rest, incredibly fast internet and air conditioning and good food, where the, those situations were terrible because the morale was way, way low. And the leaders were not doing anything to make these soldiers feel valued and appreciated and to have hope for accomplishing their mission. So what we find a lot of times is that despite the environment, good leaders can boost morale for the people that are under them. And even if you're not in the military, if you're a leader in any capacity, you know that if you can keep your team together and morale high, you can accomplish amazing things. But Saul recognized that because Samuel was not showing up 
like he was supposed to. They were going to offer sacrifices before they went into battle. They were going to worship God and, and ask God's favor on the battle. But after Samuel delayed and Samuel did not show up, Saul takes matters into his own hands. And he says this in verse 9. So he, talking about Saul, demanded, bring me the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And this is one of those highlightable moments because it helps us understand what's going on. Is It says, and Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. Now, this is a multi-layered problem. The first layer is that Saul is the king. He is not a priest. He is not legally able, according to the law of Moses, to offer the sacrifices to God. That's the job of a priest. Priests would have to go through these amazingly complicated and multifaceted approaches to becoming ceremonially clean so they could offer a sacrifice to God on behalf of the people. Samuel was supposed to offer the sacrifice, but Saul chose to do it. The second problem is God repeatedly tells us throughout Scripture that it's not the sacrifice that matters near as much as the heart of what's being offered. You see, if a person shows up and they they have tons of money and they offer all the sacrifices in the world, that doesn't mean near as much to God as it does for somebody that offers what they have out of a cheerful heart, right? You know passages like, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, or God telling his people, I desire mercy and not sacrifices, or the time where Jesus was in the temple with his disciples watching these wealthy people put their money in the offering boxes, but then this widow shows up and and throws in two small coins that are worth next to nothing. But Jesus said that she gave more than everybody else. Why? Because of her heart, not because of the amount. And so, Saul, first we see the problem that Saul has when we're talking about calling the bluff, right? Looking at at Saul's bluff here is that Saul took God's plan into his own hands. Saul took God's plan into his own hands. And this is, throughout history, the greatest problem that people have had with sin. Sin is a churchy word that we use all the time that just means disobedience against God. But the heart of every sin we ever commit is that we think we know better than God. That we take God's plan into our own hands. Moses did this. Moses, when he murdered the Egyptian um, foreman that was that was whipping the Hebrew slave, God, he knew that God wanted him to free the Hebrews. And if he would have done things God's way, he would have eventually become Pharaoh and with a word, he could have set the Hebrews free. But instead, he became a murderer and a refugee by taking God's plan to save the Hebrews that were enslaved by doing it through his own power, and he became a murderer. So we see this with Abraham. Abraham was promised a child, but when things didn't happen in the way that Abraham thought they should, he took God's plan in his own hands and had a child with his wife's servant named Ishmael. The consequences of that action are still being played out in the Middle East today because the, the, the descendants of Ishmael became the Islamic peoples. 
and the Islamic peoples and the Jews over in the Middle East hate each other and Palestine is at war with Israel even today, thousands and thousands of years later. Why? Because Abraham took God's plan into his own hands. If you've ever wondered why circumcision was such a big deal, was God used the act of circumcision to remind Israel's leaders of how Abraham chose to take God's plan into his own hands and the consequences it caused and the problems that it caused century after century for thousands of years. So when Saul takes God's plan into his own hands, this is the first step of Saul's downfall. And look at what happens in verse 10. Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, just as he was wrapping it up, it says, Samuel arrived. And this is the crazy thing, that God had a plan. Samuel was going to show up in time, but Saul failed to put total trust in God. And as a result, he took God's plan to his own hands, and Samuel arrived. And look at what it says. Saul went out to meet him and welcomed him. <laughs> and this is the second problem. Not only do we see that Saul took God's plan into his own hands, we see that Saul trusted his timing over God's. And this is all throughout Scripture as well, looking back at Abraham, that God gave Abraham the promise, and God did not fulfill the promise to Abraham for 25 more years. Abraham was 25, or excuse me, 75 when the angel came and promised him that God's message to him was that he would have a son. But because it didn't happen the way that, on the timeline that Abraham thought it should, he said, hey, I'm 100, <laughs> you know? And so along the way, during that 25-year period, he took God's plan to his own hands, and he trusted his timing over God's. And here, Saul does the same thing. And it's really easy to ridicule these people on the pages of Scripture, because we have a third-person perspective. We can see from our future position back to the past. But how many times have you and I done these same things? We take God's plan into our own hands and we trust our timing over God's. And we say, God, you don't know what you're doing. God, you, you, you don't understand my situation. It's got to happen at this time, in this way. And we force things to happen in a time that God never meant for them to. And what happens is if we would do things God's way along God's time, it's always better. And God always comes through in a way that we could never imagine. But when we take God's plan into our own hands and we do things our time instead of trusting in God's timing, it always falls apart. It always causes us more stress and more trouble than it would have in the, in the way that God originally wanted it to. You see, this was one of the problems that the early church faced as well. In 1 Peter, he writes to the churches he was overseeing, as, as technically we call him a bishop, but as, as, as the pastor of these churches. And he's telling them, look, you're, you're falling away because you're expecting Jesus to come back immediately. But obviously God's timing is better than our timing. This is my paraphrase of the whole book of 1 Peter. But he's saying that God is faithful to keep his promises. So even because people didn't think that God was following through on his promises because it wasn't happening in their time frame, they began to doubt God. And man, don't you and I do the same thing. Don't we say, God, because you are, are not doing things my way on my timeline, you must not love me. You must not really care. And as a result, we turn to our own way of doing things in disobedience and sin. And so Saul 
looking like, man, he was supposed to be this holy man, this person set apart by God to be the leader of Israel, takes God's plan into his own hands and trusts his own timing. And when Samuel comes on the scene, Saul tries to to welcome him with open arms and all this expectation of good things. But look at verse 11. It says, But Samuel said, What is this you have done? And Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would, and the Philistines are at Michmash, ready for battle. So I said, The Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. Here's the third thing. Saul's been bluffing, right? Saul's been presenting himself as this, oh, I'm doing things God's way, when really he was doing things his way. He took God's plan into his own hands, trusted his own timing over God's, and now number three, we see God made ex- or Saul excuse me, made excuses rather than accept the blame. Go back first samuel 13 11 again and look at that passage back in verse 11 but, but samuel said what is this you have done and look how many times saul blames samuel i saw my men scattering for me and you talking to samuel you didn't arrive when you said you would and the philistines are at micmash ready for battle and then he says in verse 12 so i felt compelled to offer the burnt sacrifices or the burnt offering myself before you came And so he's laying all of this at Samuel's feet. Saul's telling Samuel, you're the reason why you didn't show up on time. You didn't show up when, and I saw everything falling apart, so I had to do this. And Saul makes excuses rather than accept the blame. Once again, we see this in all the major sins in Scripture, where people make excuses to God. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, what's Adam's first response to God? Hey, this woman you gave me, she made me do it, right? Oh, goodness. And man, I'm, I'm from the deep south. We make excuses all the time. We say, oh, the devil made me do it. Or the devil's tempting me, you know? And, and, and we, we make the devil so much more powerful and so much bigger. We actually, in the, in the deep south, in my area, we have a tendency to make the devil, to make Satan on equal footing with God. We act like he's, he's everywhere, that he's all-powerful, that he's all-knowing, and we set him on the same foot, footing as God. And so we blame him for all this stuff. Oh, the devil made me do it. Oh, that, that's, that's just a temptation. You know, the, the devil tempted me, you know. And Samuel is doing a, same, a similar thing. He is making excuses. And look at what in verse 13, look at what Samuel says. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. And here we see Samuel calling Saul's bluff. Saul had been bluffing this whole time. He had been acting pious. He had been acting religious. He had been acting like he was a follower of God. He wanted to do things God's way. But we know the reality is that Samuel was doing things his way. And in verse 13, Samuel continues to say, Had you kept it, talking about the Lord's will, right, the Lord's command, had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And we know that that would eventually be David. And Samuel goes on and says, The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. And in another passage further on in 1 Samuel, Saul grabs Samuel's 
robe when Samuel tries to walk away from Saul and Samuel's robe rips and Saul is holding a piece of the robe, the cloth in his hand and Samuel looks at him and says, in the same way you've torn this robe, and this is my paraphrase, he says, the same way you've torn this robe is the same way God's going to tear the kingdom from you. It's going to be forceful. It's going to be violent. And so what we see is that, man, Samuel has has the opportunity here, and he calls Saul's bluff. All throughout this period of time, Saul had been bluffing. One of the things that's interesting in the scripture is how often Samuel and Saul are interacting and Saul refers when he talks to Samuel he talks about God he calls he he calls the Lord Samuel's God he says I want to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God he almost never calls God his God Saul almost never says the Lord my God and it's really telling about Saul's heart that even though Saul recognized God and he did things like offer sacrifices to God And he wanted to keep the people together, centered around God. But God was never Saul's God. And this is our big truth for today. That when you lose the why, you'll confuse the what. When you lose the why, you'll confuse the what. You see, Saul had lost the why of the sacrifice. He thought of the sacrifice as a way to unify his people and his troops. He thought of it just as a something to, to center the people together and keep his troops together from running away from battle. And as a result, he confused the what. He didn't treat the sacrifice as holy. He didn't treat it as something dedicated and special to God that only a priest could do. He lost its value. Why? Because he lost his why. And when you lose the why, you'll confuse the what. And this is when it causes us to bluff. We confuse the, the, the what because we forget the why. All of a sudden, church begins something we do because we want people to think well of us. That we offer money in the offering plate because we want people to see us do it right? We serve in leadership positions because we want authority over other people. We do all of these things with the wrong heart. We lose the why and we confuse the what. And we see all of this throughout scripture and throughout history happen in followers of God, whether it's the Old Testament, the New Testament, or the church history that we've inherited over the centuries. That when people lose the why, they confuse the what. I remember when I was first getting hired on into ministry, I was hired on to be a worship leader, and we were bringing in modern contemporary music. And I tell you, it, it for many people, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, because we were moving away from the old traditional hymns and moving towards more radio-friendly, more popular modern music. Even though we were careful to keep the, the message in the song centered on God, to make sure they were opportunities for worship, people were so caught up in this the style that they forgot why we were worshiping in the first place and they were willing to leave our church community over it and to fight over it and i remember sitting down with with one of these families that was talking about they were going to leave our church community over the music and they had the kindness to talk to me before they left since i was the worship leader and i asked them i said so do you you know do you recognize that when the hymns came out they were the modern music 
that when the, the great hymns of the faith that have been written centuries ago when they first came out that was popular music that was the 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 modern music of the time and you could just see the light bulb go off and i got the chance to explain to them that guys we're not changing the message we're changing our method that we're using modern music and modern styles to present an, an, an ancient message that the church has communicated for centuries. And thankfully, they were able to come around and they admitted, it may not be my preference, but it's all about his presence, right? We talked about that before. You see, they had lost the why and they were focusing on the what. They were confusing it. They were all focused on the style of the tradition. And they forgot about why we even worship God through music in the first place. How many times have you and I done that in our lives? How many times have we had a mic-mash battle come up, a mic-mash battle in our lives? And whatever the issue is, maybe it's our finances, maybe it's our position, maybe it's our family, maybe it's our relationships. Who knows? You fill in the blank. But how many times have we had these battles come in our lives and we begin to doubt God because God doesn't show up when and how we want. And so we begin the bluff. We begin to present things to other people when we're really not being obedient to God. We say, oh, we say these pious prayers and we think, say, oh, God's got it in his hands. You know, we say churchy things like, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. When in reality, we're the ones putting all the puzzle pieces together on our own. James wrote about this in his letter to the church because a very similar problem was happening in the church at the time. People were acting pious. They were looking religious. They had a great outside, but on the inside, they had become legalistic and were trying to make their position better by obeying the quote-unquote rules, right? And James writes to the church and he says this, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. Then he says this, but if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, that's a highlight portion right there that sets you free. He says, but if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. You see, James wanted the people to understand it wasn't about what you were doing. It was why you were doing it. He wanted them to understand it wasn't just them being pious and being holy and churchy and looking all wonderful in front of everybody else. It was about the heart, and God sees the heart. Another passage I almost brought up was where Samuel goes to find the next king. They're talking about, he about the time he found David, and he's looking at all of David's older brothers. And David was so far down the totem pole because he was the youngest son that he wasn't even brought before Samuel as a candidate for king. He was out in the fields. His dad didn't even bring him in front. And God told Samuel, he said, man looks at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. And that's what I want to ask you today. Have you lost the why and confused the what in your life when it comes to following God? Have you been bluffing about things in your life? putting on a good face, a poker face, right? We call it. Have you been putting on a poker face towards other people when on the inside you're either scrambling to do it your way or choosing to put yourself before God? 
And then number two, what consequences are you going to have to accept to move forward? You see, in cards, when the bluff is called, you have to show your cards. When the bluff is called, you have to let everybody else see what's going on. And when that happens, it may not happen today, but if you and I in our lives, the longer we bluff, the more we guarantee that it's somebody's going to call us on it. And the best thing to do is to just lay the cards down and say, hey, God, I fold before you. I want to do things your way instead of my way. Today can be the day that you redeem your hand, right? That if this is us playing our cards that God has given us in our life, today can be the day where you and I say, God, I want to stop bluffing. I want to stop pretending. I want to stop acting like I'm something that I'm not. And today I want to come to you to be who you made me to be, to be what you created me to be. I'm going to quit bluffing. We need to stop forgetting the why and confusing the what. We need to go back and remember why God called us, why we do the things we do in church, in our church communities, in our services, in our leadership, in our business, in our homes, in our relationships. When we lose our why, we confuse the what. Today, let us remember why God set us apart and remember that we what we do doesn't make us right with God, but we do it because God has already made us right with Him. Because when you lose the why, you'll confuse the what. Let's pray together. King Jesus, help us, starting today for the first time or the thousandth time, to stop bluffing. Call our bluff today. Let us put our cards on the table and say, God, you can have it all. Everything I've got can be yours. And Lord, I pray that you would begin to change our lives, draw us closer to you, make us more conformed every day to your image. Help us to quit bluffing in life, especially when those mic-mash battles, those mic-mash moments in our life come. Help us instead to be obedient to your word, to have the right heart, because when we lose the why, we confuse the what. So Lord, bless the men and women in the sound of my voice today. Amen. Thank you.